Welcome to Rooster Radio, where we talk to interesting people who do amazing things. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. This episode was first published on Off Field, our podcast that focuses on the world of sport outside of the arena. For more info about that show, visit offfield.co. Dizzy was one of the world's great fast bowlers during the mid-2000s when Australia was dominating international cricket. He took 259 test match wickets, and who could forget that double century he made against Bangladesh in 2006? If not for injuries, his record could have been even better. He's now a highly respected cricket coach and recently led the Adelaide Strikers to victory in the 2018 Big Bash League. In recent years, he's become a vegan. He explains the ethical and health reasons, but reveals the motivation behind the lifestyle change, the sudden and tragic loss of his father, Neil, who suffered a heart attack while helping Jason move house. Attempts to revive his dad were unsuccessful, and the aftermath led Jason to reflect on all aspects of his own life. Jason also talks about other defining moments, including the grade cricket banter that inspired his path to test cricket, his partnership with champion Glenn McGrath, overcoming adversity, coaching insights, family life, his Indigenous heritage, and much more. Offfield is produced by Pickstar, the best place to book sports stars and personalities like Jason for all kinds of events, campaigns, and experiences. Choose from 700 sports stars, past and present. Pickstar works fast with any budget. Visit pickstar.com.au. Now enjoy our chat with Jason Gillespie. Jason Gillespie, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. It's great. Um, early days, yep. what were you like as a student? What were you like in primary school? Um, I was pretty diligent. I, um, I did enjoy school. Um, you know, I wanted to impress. I, I wanted to do really well, um, whether it be maths or spelling or um, any of those things. So... You know, I worked hard at that. I prided myself. I thought I was a pretty good speller. I thought I did all right, and I used to do well in all the spelling tests and things. I thought I was pretty cool with that. Um, maths, probably not so strong at, but uh, I had to work pretty hard at maths, for instance, to um, you know to pass, um, even from a pretty young age. It wasn't a strong suit, but but I, I always wanted to impress my teachers and um, you know and do well. And so growing up, you have memories of um, wanting to do the right thing and, and, and wanting, you know, conscientious almost. I think so, yeah. Um, you know, I didn't want to get into trouble at home or anything like that. Um, you know, I remember and um, I remember at home, Dad, Dad had this uh, wonderful man, uh, my late father, and, um, you know, he'd always say, you know, Boys, you know, at that stage it was just me and my, one of my brothers. Um, and, and this was when we were growing up in Sydney. So I moved to Adelaide when I was about 10, but in Sydney. And, you know, Dad had this wooden spoon. And when you're a little kid, it looks massive. Like, it looks huge. <laughs> and he said, oh, you know, that'll get wrapped around your bottom if, uh, if you step out of line and do anything wrong. So oh, I was frightened of this bloody big wooden spoon. So I <laughs> towed the line and... My my little brother was a little bit more adventurous, but he never got the spoon. I, I don't think my dad would have ever used it. I think it was more a deterrent thing. But then, I, but I do remember when um, after growing up, I was an adult, and this wooden spoon I found it, 
just in mum, mum and dad's house, and it was only really small. But, <laughs> but I had all these the memories. memories as a kid of this wooden spoon, right? this giant thing that was just pride of place, and yeah, that scared me. So, so in answer to your question, yeah, I absolutely towed the line. I, I was frightened of the wooden spoon. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your old man. From from what I've been reading, seems like uh, he was a bit of a character and um, yeah. a bit of a collector as well. He was a he was a real character and yeah, um, hoarder is probably a better word. <laughs> um, um, yeah, t- towards the back end of his life, I mean, it, it was quite amazing and um, with his hoarding and collect, he collected anything and everything. And, like what? Um, oh, mate, anything from cricket memorabilia. I mean, even I mean, even so much. I mean, I, I remember when uh, released a book years ago back in '07, I think, and. It didn't do particularly well, and that, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but whenever Dad saw my book out for sale and it was cheap, or he'd just buy it, even though he had dozens of the copies of the book. Um, but he, he'd buy golf clubs, even though he had like didn't particularly play that often, and he had about three or four sets already. He would buy another set. Uh, he, he he collected scotch. Now the really interesting thing was is that he didn't drink scotch. And no one in our family drank scotch. But his reasoning was, well, oh, it's a bargain, it's half price. I go, but Dad, do you drink scotch? No, no, but it was half price, Jason. Dad, I'll ask you again, do you drink scotch? But it was really cheap, it was good value. So he was always looking for a bargain. It didn't, didn't matter the fact whether he needed this anything or not. So the whole garage was just uh, just full of um, crap. I mean, we have a laugh about it, but sometimes that aspect of a, someone's life can become quite limiting. I mean, it, there's complex reasons why people collect or hoard. Um, was it ever deemed, uh, you know, a negative part yeah. of his world or was it always a, an endearing part of his world? Oh, very much endearing and, and humour. And, and all, we've got... Um, you know, Aboriginal um, connection in our life, our, our, our heritage, and so Dad would be would collect uh, um, collect Aboriginal art and things like this. So uh, had that, um, but it was certainly an endearing part of his um, um, of his character. It was a bit of a how can I say this? It was a bit of a bandwagon jumper. Like you know, <laughs> anything that was popular, he'd sort of all of a sudden he'd get into it and. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite funny. Like he, 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 all sorts of stuff. Like yeah, like um, you know, even like WWE wrestling. He, he quite liked that. So he, he, if he saw a DVD of a WrestleMania, he and, and, and particularly if it was on special, he, he'd buy it. He, he, mate, he was a fascinating character. He was very funny. He was he was a very fine man. You mentioned the indigenous heritage, yep. and uh, your father was very active. In that space, what what influence did that have on you, particularly growing up and learning about about your heritage and culture? Yeah, I, yeah, it was it was an interesting one because from a very young age, we you know it was just a given that we're, we've got in uh, Aboriginal heritage in our family, and it was something that we were very aware of. Mm-hmm. We very we celebrated that. It was just it was just part of who we were, um, and. Um, you know, I, I admit I was a bit probably naive uh, uh, when I was younger. Um, I wasn't aware of many issues, you know, associated with um, with Aboriginal culture and and the likes. And uh, you know, certainly even to this day, I've still got a lot to learn. Um, you know, we're always learning. Um, but I suppose what 
what really surprised me. Dad, Dad ended up working for Aboriginal legal rights. He was the CEO here in Adelaide. Uh, he did that for a number of years, up until about 18 months uh, before he passed away. Um, so it was a big part of his mm. life, and uh, you know he felt he was you know chipping away and making a difference and things like that. And, um, but I do remember around the year 2000, um, uh, it was put on a um, uh, in a newspaper article that you know I was acknowledged as the first Indigenous player to represent Australia. And, uh, you know, it was seen as a massive thing and a massive almost shock to people around the country and, oh, why hadn't this come out mm. before? And I, it was kind of one of those things. It never occurred to me that it was, you know, and again, naively, that, mm. that it was such an issue. And I kind of reflected back on it and go, oh, well, yeah, it is a, it's a big deal. And I probably didn't give that the acknowledgement that it, it deserved, but but it surprised me. Mm. And the reason it surprised me is because just all our life we knew mm. that we're an indigenous culture, so it, it was just who we were. Like, and it, it sort of, admittedly, it, it surprised me that there was such a big uh, stir, only because we'd mm. obviously known I'd known since I was a young kid. And rightly or wrongly, you know, a lot of indigenous uh, sports stars are kind of burdened with the expectation of being the face of a movement as well as, um, you know, understanding their culture and, mm. and their past. And it, yeah. it, I guess people kind of look to sports stars to champion that, even if you don't necessarily want to in the early days. Yeah, and I, look, I, I think there's, there's merit in that. I, you know, for me, I, I think when it comes to sportsmen and, you know, a lot of young kids and a lot of people look up to uh, mm. sportsmen as role models. And, and role model is a... Um, a term that um, you know, people interpret differently. Um, the way I see it, I, you know, I've, I've never been one to uh, necessarily embrace that term and, mm. and have to have a, a definition or a meaning for it because I think it means different to a lot of people. And, and for me, it means simply, you know, I think if you want, if you want, if you see a, a sportsman go out there with absolute pride and passion and doing something they love and they're out there and they're giving their all. For me, that rubs off on kids mm. more than anything. You know, so that will rub off. So I think that is being a role model by doing, just mm. being out there and um, playing the game hard, being fair, very respectful, um, showing how much you love the sport or mm. whatever you're doing. You love the, the passion that you're showing. I think that's what rubs off, and that's for me a definition of a role model. Mm. But you know, I understand that other people have different, uh, you know, definitions of it. Yeah, it seems like for a lot of people, role models being confused with perfectionism, and that they expect, well, you're a role model, so you have to live this perfect life. Because if you put a foot wrong, well, then you know, all, all these kids are going to be disappointed, and yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah it's, it is a challenge, and you know, I, I think you'd like to think, by and large. Um, all sportsmen know where the mm. where the line is. Um, you know, maybe not everyone, but I, I think the vast majority. Mm. I think you guys would agree that mm. you know the vast majority would know where that line is. Mm. Now you had a meteoric rise, really, into the yeah. senior Australian ranks. But at what point in the development pathway did it click with you that here is I've got the opportunity to do some damage in this sport and and actually make a living out of it and play for Australia. Um, it's a good question. I I remember when I first acknowledged that there's a chance I could earn a living out of this. 
I got I was playing A grade for Adelaide and I was I think I was eighteen and um I got a letter in the mail and it was inviting me to play second eleven game in Melbourne. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. And so I've taken this letter to club practice and it just goes through, oh, dear Jason, congratulations, you've been selected, the second eleven, trip to Melbourne, all this State sort of stuff. State logos everywhere. Oh, yeah, the SACA logo mm, there. Wow. And list of the team. And I'm thinking, wow, how cool is this? And then it says, you know, um, allowances or something. And it says, oh, look, $80 a day to be paid. So I interpret that, I had to pay 80 bucks a day to play. <laughs> so this is the naivety of me at the time. And... And how I'm reading it, $80 a day to be paid. Um, but I suppose where, you know, uh, when, I, when it was explained to me that I was going to get paid, so, oh, wow, how cool is this to get paid to play cricket? And there was an allowance, a daily allowance as well. I'm thinking, geez, I'm going to be rich here. This is better than earning 50 bucks a night, um, less fuel and tax, um, doing deliveries for Pedro's Dollar Pizza. So this was thinking it was working, but... But what really stuck out for me at the time, when I first read it, I had no thought of, oh, no, I'm not sure I can play it. Um, I just had to find the money to pay yeah. to play. Uh, that was my attitude. Mm, I just Whatever oh, it takes. I've got to find this money. So I was going to ring around and ring my folks and see how I can spot me alone and that just so I can play this second eleven game because that, that was the naivety, yeah. I suppose, of it. So you weren't on this kind of ambitious pathway as a 15-year-old where you, you, know, you was, had written goals down and you were going to play for Australia? Um, oh, I wouldn't say that. I, I had a lot of growing pains from age 14 to 16, I suppose, 14 to 16, 17. And, you know, I had – because I grew. I, I went from summer holidays in year nine to then come back for year 10. I went from being the smallest in the class to the tallest in the class, uh, tallest in the uh, grade. Uh, I grew half a foot and uh, over that summer I had a lot of problems with, you know, my knees, um, my back. So I I had some injury-interrupted seasons um, because I wanted to be a fast bowler. But, um, you know, some injuries happened. I wasn't very strong, whatever. And I mean, the moment I knew I was going to give it everything, I was, I think I was 16, 17 and playing grade, grade practice. And, you know, you do the old school lap of the oval and then, sit by the sight screen and everyone does their groin stretches and, and hamstring stretches and just talk and, you know, all guys from different grades and, um, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, what their goals are in life and all this sort of stuff. So lads are talking, you know, bloke, he's, oh, mate, I'm working in Mitsubishi and, you know, I'm hoping to get up to management level and, you know, I'll play cricket and enjoy that on the weekends and stuff. And they went around and everyone had different goals and, and I just said, oh, look, by the time I'm 19, I want to be playing for South Australia and by the time I'm 21, I'm going to play for Australia. And to a man, everyone in that semicircle just started pissing themselves laughing. And they started calling me the Lion of Adelaide and taking the absolute piss out of me. And it was, it was the moment, you know, that was the turning point for me because in my mind I saw myself a certain way and I, I could see the path to playing for Australia. But it was a light bulb moment for me because I realised there and then that no one else could see what I could see. So it, I had a decision to make. I had to change. I had to do something different uh, because all these people were seeing was this big, tall, lanky year 11 student, you know, talking a good game, but he bowls little dibbly dobblers, 
playing D-grade cricket. Mm. And that, I realised that moment I had to change. So I, I, I remember it distinctly. I measured out this big long run-up in the nets that night. I, I just steamed in. I, mate, I was charging in like Shoah Bakhtar and just bowling as fast as I could. And I actually bowled some decent pace. Um, but obviously... Because I wasn't strong or anything, you know. I had the mm. speed, but I didn't have the stamina. And uh, and I remember after that session, I went home, got out, uh, went out, put some running gear on. I went for a big long run, and then I was doing push-ups and sit-ups in front of the telly. And I started to do that on a daily basis, and wow. uh, and just and it, something just clicked, and it went from there. So, the response then. So people are laughing at you. You could a lot of people would shrink back. Or go, yeah, maybe actually, maybe that was a bit lofty goal. Maybe that was a bit silly. But you kind of responded like, no. Mm. Like it almost galvanised your goals and thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it was just that that moment that everyone has. You've got a choice. You've got a mm. couple of paths to go down. Which one do you choose? And you know, I, my goal since age seven was to play cricket for Australia. Um, I wasn't going to give up on that. Um so I had a decision to make and and I think deep down I probably realised I was going through the motions a little bit and maybe I just needed the I'd look back now and I just wonder whether that was the it was a great moment for me to have that you know, that spark that mm. um, it, it was only the other weekend I um, I played a uh, old oldies game, you know, former player, past player day at Adelaide Cricket Club and uh, a couple of lads were there, a couple of the oldies with a couple of my good mates at the club and they're still involved in the club and um, they actually tell that story to because they're the C and D grade captains and uh, they actually tell that story to the young guys that are in the C and D grade. Um, so it was nice to hear mm. that, that they remembered that because we were talking about it the other night, the other day and they just said, oh, remember how much crap we gave you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was quite nice to... It's to now hear. part of the, uh, the Adelaide Cricket Club. A bit, bit folklore, of folklore, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Where were you when you were informed that you were selected for the Australian cricket team? Um, and I, how? I actually can't remember. You can't I remember? Mean, no. You're telling me you didn't get a call from whoever the selector was? We were hoping for I, that emotive story. I, 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 no, but yeah. I, I do remember when I first got selected for South Australia. That was the one that was in my mind because um, – uh, no, I do remember the Aussie one. I'll, I'll get to that. But the, um, the South Australian one, I was just driving home. Um, I'd been, I had training, then I'd been to a friend's house, and I'd just gone to put some fuel in my car. And I got back in, I turned the thing, and then, um, and the radio came on, and it said, "Oh, the Shield side's been, the squad's been picked, and um, oh, a couple of new faces." And my name came up on the radio. So that's how I heard. Did you yell out, that's me, to everyone? No, I was was a little, I was just in my little corona and um, just just at the the fuel stop at the Caltex or something. And uh, yeah, it was just, I I was in a bit of disbelief. Um, Well, that can't be right. I've just gone three grade games where I think I've got one wicket in total. Um, Mm. So I must have impressed at training because I was training with the squad. Um, but yeah, but the Australian one, um, I literally just got a phone call. Um, get called up to the World Cup in 1996. Craig McDermott had um, injured himself, and they needed a replacement bowler. And um, you know, I'd had a good summer 
with South Australia, took took a number of wickets, and um, I'd only played a couple of uh, fifty over games, and I was called up to a World Cup. So this was probably back in the days where you know there weren't wasn't as specialised. Mm. There was only the rare the odd player that was specialist. You know, basically, the Test side would play the majority of the Test side would play one day cricket and vice versa. So, um, but yeah, just had a phone call and yeah, but but I I, I do remember the state one because it was. <laughs> And a bloody fuel stop. Yeah. <laughs> What's it like to enter a team like that or a squad like that in that era of cricket when, you know, there's some huge names, some huge figures. And egos. And egos. And you're coming from your background, your pathway, South Australia. Yeah. You then land amongst these guys. I, I remember it. I flew into India and I was met at the airport by... Bob Simpson, who was coach of Australia. Uh, I'd never met Bob before. Um, I was trying to work out on the plane who I actually knew in the Australian side. Um, I realised I didn't know, I'd never met anyone, or um, let alone played against anyone. So I, I was complete unknown. Uh, and and this may sound a little bit silly, but the thing that stood out for me was, you know, I, I suppose these guys I'd grown up watching and idolising and that, but. And this sounds silly, I know, but it, the thing that stood out for me was everyone was on a nickname basis. You know, like mm. I'm, I'm looking at Mark Taylor and I'm being introduced to him as Tubby. Yeah. Oh, this is Mark Taylor. This is, oh, g'day, Tub. <laughs> you know? and, and then, oh, oh that's Tugger, that's Junior, that's, that's Warney, uh, that's Pidge. Yeah. Oh, so I've got a... I remember that was probably the hardest thing. I had to try and remember all these blokes' nicknames. So mm. instead of Mr. McGrath or Mr. Warren, you know, <laughs> Mr. Taylor. Uh, but that was it was weird. I mean, and I, that's why I know it may sound really mm. weird because as I revered these guys. These guys I idolised, you know, dreaming of the opportunity to play alongside these guys. Um, you know, I think back in my mind, probably thought, oh, is that ever going to happen? Um, and then to actually be given the Australian kit and... I'm going on the team bus to the ground and you know, I'm helping mixing drinks and stuff and I'm bowling to these guys in the nets and, yeah, it was a bit surreal and, um, yeah, it was a bit bizarre. But How do you, th- how do you go about fitting in? Is it – are you thinking, you know, on a personal level, how do I fit in or is it just pure, I've got to earn these guys respect? Um, just think you, you've just got to be yourself, um, be authentic and, and and I think along those lines, just you know, that n- none of the lads had actually seen me play cricket, uh, mm. seen me bowl. So you know, that was a great opportunity for me to just show them what I could do. Um, so I, I just I just put all my efforts into my training, and and just I was a bit of a church mouse around the team. I just sat and listened and learned. You know, ears ears, you know, listening eyes wide open, ears ears at the ready, taking any information I could. Mm. What is it about the locker room that can be really hard? I mean, we, we have interviewed Sean Tate and he talked about a lot of the loneliness and the hard aspects of it. Um, what were the bits that, that you found difficult in the world of travelling as a cricketer? Um, I, I loved it. I, you know, I, I think you know, we have... You know, people that are probably extroverts, introverts. I'm probably more of an extrovert. Um, I quite like it. I, you know, but I can understand. And, and I suppose going to coaching, I think you, you sort of understand that um, 
you know, different types of people and can, you know, might struggle, you know, and, you know, and, and look, as you know, in locker rooms and, and dressing rooms, you know, there, there can be at times can be a bit of a piss take culture. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I think good teammates and good people around dressing rooms, um, understand, um, the dynamic in a dressing room and, um, and kind of sense if someone's, you know, not, not feeling it, it, not quite comfortable. I know uh, that's where Darren Lehman is a master of that. Um, that's why I think he's such a, a good man manager, a good coach. Because I remember when I first went into the South Australian dressing room, uh, he was one of the first boys to come up and introduce himself and um, make you feel welcome. And, you know, that's something I'll never, ever forget as a young kid. Um, you know, Darren became one of my, has become one of my best mates. and uh, But I'll, I'll never forget that welcome. Um, and, you know, there are a number of guys did that. Guys did that in the Australian side as well. And, and you always remember those things as a young punk going into, a, into an environment like that. You do remember those uh, moments. And, um, but, yeah, if, if you are a bit more of an introvert, if you uh, – you know, I, I can understand that it could be a, a, a tough place to be at times. Well, who were the protagonists and who were the, the more nurturers in the Australian cricket team? What, where did kind of the roles lie – you know, how did it fit together? Um, all right. Well, McGrath was just a bit of a pest. He was a bit of fun, like good fun to be around. Um, just liked to have a bit of fun, like relax. Uh, Warney did his thing, uh, very vocal in his opinions. Um, Mark Taylor, I found to be very good in understanding the environment and maintaining that and you know, making it a, a really good, uh, comf- welcoming place. I found that's why I found him to be a fantastic uh, leader. Uh, Steve War became the same. Um, oh well. Uh, th- then you had you had other guys who, you know, depending on the stage of the game, you know, particularly a five day game, you know, you know, lads sort of go through. Um, you know, different stages. So, like mm-hmm. the opening batsman, for instance, like a excuse, Matty Hayden, Justin Langer as an example. Uh, if it was a fielding day, they they would really work hard to pump everyone's tyres up uh, around them and be more outward mm-hmm. and be more extrovert. Whereas if it was batting, and this is where us bowlers probably sometimes weren't ideal because we were just so happy it was a batting day that we didn't have to go and bowl <laughs> that we were jumping around carrying on whereas you know we as we learned we had to understand that these guys are back in their shells and mm. you know in that in the zone and focusing mm. and and the like and um so where we had to probably pick up the slack because on a bowling day us bowlers are probably just Getting everything ready, you know, getting rub downs, we're putting on our, getting strappings, we're, we're focused on, we're thinking about, mm. you know, the batsmen that we're coming up against. So we're probably a bit more insular. So these guys, had to, the, the batters had to pick up the slack and vice versa, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. So it's interesting. You know, we, we you know, I, th- I think we, we, we never really spoke about it, you know, in meetings and things like that. It was just done naturally. Uh, it was just lads thinking on their feet and, and, and having empathy for mm. what everyone else had to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. further to that, with all these different personalities and styles, how does it come together into a, into a dynamic or a culture that creates the success that you guys had in that era Common of goal. cricket? Win games of cricket for our country. Uh, that is 
the simplicity of it. Yeah, and you know, you know, I wish I had a more detailed answer for you, but I think it's that you know, you're representing your country. You do what it takes, you know, and you know, it, everyone knew exactly what their role was. You know, role clarity and key. Um, back your mates up, hundred um, percent, and go out there and, mm. and do everything you can, and you know, be the best you can be. Monty and I were talking about it earlier, and obviously Monty's, uh, you know, was an exceptional fast bowler. Um, I love, I love the craft of fast bowling, um, and so I'm keen to extend that dynamic question about, you know, to you and McGrath, and you guys are in an incredibly successful partnership. Mm. Was there a kind of uh, an overt strategy about how you guys would work together and how you would bowl and how how obviously Glenn bowls? Oh. Uh, y- I used to wind Glenn up a bit because I, I was a little bit toward even the, the second half of his career. You know, he was more the line and length early in his career. He was quite quick, but then he he'd had a couple of injuries and that, and, and he was more sort of settled into a line and length and a pace that suited him. And I was a little bit quicker, probably not not quite as accurate. So I used to say to him, "Well, why don't I take the breeze because I'm quicker than you?" <laughs> and his argument was, "Well, Diz, if." I bowl with the breeze and you bowl into it. Then we're roughly the same pace. So I think that'll work <laughs> nicely. So, and, and then at the end he said, and anyway, dude, I'm the senior bowler and you'll just do as you're told and walked off. No worries, Glenn. Um, <laughs> we, I mean, we're really tight. We're a great relationship. And, um, but I always felt I was always in the game in test cricket and, and one day cricket with Glenn at the other end because he was so – batsmen by and large would just sit on Glenn so they'd look at the other end and go, well, there might be some opportunities to score mm. here against uh, Dizzy. So, you know, and I wasn't quite as accurate as, as Glenn. Um, and I tended to bowl a slightly fuller length than Glenn as well. Mm. So, you know, batsmen think they can go after me a bit. So I always felt I was in the game. Probably went for a few more runs, but I always felt I was a chance of getting a wicket. And I think that's what worked quite well. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I, I would just listen to. Glenn, you know how how he'd go about it. I mean, he he's. I did ask him one day the secret of his success and what's the secret. And he, he said, "Look, I don't really swing the ball. I don't really seam it around. You know, if it, if it seems off the deck, that's great. I just try to hold the ball. You know, seam up, mm. and if it just does something off the pitch, that's great. But you know what, this said, I can hit that spot on the wicket ninety five times mm. out of a hundred with my height, my bounce, and you know, I my presence. I'm going to take wickets." Mm. <laughs> That was his go. whole coaching uh, to me in my whole time. I played, ten years I played with him, but it, it it said to me it said a lot to me, um, you know. And you know, you guys would have heard, you know, Glenn. Whenever there was an Ashes prediction, oh five nil to Australia, yeah, we're going to win every game. And people might misconstrue that as arrogance. Well, if you ever meet the man and spend time with him, you know he's the least arrogant person in the in the history of the world. Um, but it, it gives you a real insight into his psyche. And I've always said uh, Glenn McGrath is the most self-assured, confident uh, person I've ever met in the world, let alone cricket. Um, and based on he, – he's, he's just so confident in his own ability and confident in his teammates and what they can do. You know, he, he just said, well, I know I work really hard. I know what I can do. Mm. I know I've, I've trained for this. I'm ready. I'll just do my job now. It, it sounds so simplistic, but mm. but he had such belief in his own ability. Uh, I've never known any in in any walk of life to have the belief and the confidence in themselves 
as mm. Glenn. And it's not arrogance. Mm. It's just a genuine confidence because he's had the evidence. The evidence is there. The mm. evidence of all the hard work he's done, lead up, the evidence is there with past success. So he has all that to fall back on. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I use that a lot, you know, in coaching. And, you know, I've often, I'm often asked about Glenn and I just, I just um, tell that story mm. and tell those stories about about Glenn because he's just um, such a confident man in his own ability and, you know, that rubbed off on, on a lot of people in, in around Australian cricket. So you mentioned coaching. I guess taking everything that you've learned from your career and, and then applying it as a coach, can you tell us a little bit more about the role of a coach in cricket? Because it does seem to be a little bit of mystery around it. Like, yep. like what is the role of the coach? And I'm sure it varies um, based on the format, but how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I get asked this a lot and, um, you know, there's different layers to it. First and foremost, I I look at, you know, game. let's use game day, for example. I'm, I'm a big believer in um, um, making sure that the lads know that the support staff, the coaching staff, trust and back them and uh, are nice and calm. So, for instance, if a player looks towards a dugout, or the dressing room, you know, I want them to see me relaxed and smiling, um, because there's enough pressure that sports mm. people put on themselves. And um, in my opinion, um, you know, as a as a coach, you don't want to add to that. Mm. Um, so, because I, I I I'm really uh, strong on this. I, I think coaching. Um, I think you're three quarters of the way there if a player knows that you genuinely believe in them and backing them to the hilt. I think you're three quarters away mm. there. Um, then the extension of that, you know, you engage with a captain. Cricket's a unique sport and then the captain, once he goes on the ground, he runs the ship. He, he's got a lot of mm. lot of strategies. He's got bowling changes. He's got setting fields, um, you know, the flow of the game and whatnot. Um, I, I've always said there's a reason why we're called support staff because we're there to support... Mm. The captain were there to support the players, um, so we, we talk about strategy. Um, we can break down. You know, I see ourselves as coaches, as, as providers of information to not just the captain but all the players, and provide them information um, on their opposition, reinforce some things that they do uh, themselves, and, and reinforce the good things that they do as, as players um, at training. You know, obviously we, we put together training sessions. Um, we challenge the players mm. to, to improve their individual skills. So each player has their own individual plan. So we, we uh, reinforce those plans that you know they've helped create on the you know helping their game. So if there's any technical issues that you know we can keep an eye on, mm. some tactical things that work through. But you know where you know in my coaching how I've done it's always been very inclusive. Um, you know a lot of it is driven by the players. And as I said, we're there to support them mm. in everything we do. And uh, I'm a big believer in empowering other coaches on the staff. Mm. Um, you know, I know I'm, I'm head coach and got assistants, but you know, we all see ourselves as you know, or, you know, in the dressing room, we're, we're almost equal. And mm. in that, you know, it's you know, we don't have this hierarchy system where I'm, you have to clear it with the coach before you can talk to him. That rubbish. Mm. Just, Let's just do our jobs, get mm. the job done. And um, 
Yeah, so I hope I've answered your no, question. No, absolutely. Yeah. Monty, I'm, I'm conscious that um, Dizzy's going to have to go shortly and we've got all these punters questions. Oh, which we're, So I'm going to, I think we should extend just by a couple of minutes our punters minute to yeah, yeah. A, a, yeah, a punters a few minutes. Um, <laughs> but I guess my first question is how has the world got this perception of Dizzy Gillespie, the man's man, you know, ambassador for West End or something like that at a certain <laughs> point with a mullet and, you know, the type of guy that could fix any car in the world and come over for a barbie. And you're a vegan, you're currently <laughs> sipping a cup of green tea in front of us. Uh, you know, you've got this quirky sort of nature about you. I mean, do you ever laugh at kind of the two worlds? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned about you know being able to fix cars. I mean, geez, I can't even change a light globe, mate, without uh, without having to read an instruction manual. Um, yeah, you only have to ask my wife. Like, I must be one of the rare blokes in this world that my wife has a toolbox and I don't. Well, nah, Andrew's mate, like that as mate, well. I'm exactly the mate, same. I'm a shocker. Mate, I, I, <laughs> mate, I can't even put together a shelf from IKEA. I'm that bad. Um, There's a I, box there that's waiting for me to oh, set up it? some drawers. So yeah. <laughs> I, my my uh, my seven year old son can put to get read instructions and put together a Lego uh, car mm-hmm. better than I can. Um, I'm really terrible at that. Look, um, yeah, there's a lot of perception out there. Um, look, I, I I decided to adopt that vegan lifestyle a few years ago. Not long after my about a year after my dad passed away. Um, there's various re- reasons for that. Um, but yeah, you sort of you look at your own mortality when you, um, you know, when you, you know, trying to resuscitate your father after he's had a heart attack. That um, that gives you a bit of perspective on life and gives you a bit of a window potentially into your future if you don't start looking after yourself. And uh, so it's probably a year after that. Um, you know, in that year, I was trying to look after myself and and you know eat as healthy as I can and try and stay stay a bit fitter or stay fit and. Um, and then, you know, just with, uh, I watched some um, documentaries on um, on animals and, you know, the um, and food and things like that. And, and I, I literally went vegan overnight and um, and I only, you know, and you probably speak to a lot of people who went down, have gone down the vegan route. I mean, they'll all say the same thing, that I only wish I'd known about this earlier. Mm. Um, so everyone's different. You know, I, I think, you know, in the three and a half years as I've been vegan and I've gone through the stages where you you just want to share every bit of knowledge that you pick up with everyone um, and you quickly realise that that doesn't quite work Um, but you know if someone asks me and you know um, why and you know what have you learnt and I'm happy to share that but at the end of the day we live in a non-vegan world and um, you know it's it's up to individuals to to make their own mind up you know look I, I don't have a problem you know some of my best mates are massive carnivores and we have we have good debates every now and again but you know um you know their choices you know my choices you know uh poles apart but it doesn't mean we can't be mates and look i can't help but let it slide i don't want to bring the mood down but obviously um you know i never realized that that you went through that process with your dad and that was obviously Mm. fairly impactful yeah it was yeah. yeah yeah um you know the old man he'd um he'd been going Mum and Dad came to visit us in England. We lived in Leeds and I was working at Yorkshire. It was my second season there and Mum and Dad came over for a holiday. And um, Dad had lost his job at ALRM, Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement here in Adelaide, about 18 months previously. There was a bit of a falling out there and, and he ended up not working there. And 
So for that 18 months, you know, obviously um, you know, he's a proud man and he's obviously, you know, there's obviously a lot of stress involved, um, financial pressures and, and the like. Probably I wasn't completely aware of, to be honest. Uh, it was only after he passed away that I'd sort of found out a few things that, you know, probably contributed to it. But, but one thing that stood out for me when mum and dad came over to visit, um, you know, dad was eating a lot of crap food, um, you know, drinking a bit. Um, and, you know, so much so that I, I remember one morning um, I had a day off and, you know, he's he's just come back from the supermarket with a carton of beer and said, oh, Jason, I'm, come and have a beer with me. And it's like 10 in the morning. I go, Dad, what are you... <laughs> he said, oh, well, it's five o'clock in Australia. I go, okay, mate, but we're actually in England here. And uh, that probably got my alarm bells going a little bit. Um, but I, I think... You know, and after Dad died, I sort of saw that you know that there was some, um, you know, some issues going on, and a few financial pressures and the like. And um, you know, I think to this day, I sort of I'm pretty convinced that the old fellow was probably 24 hours away from asking for help. Um, so you look back and think, oh, just wish he'd, he'd done that. Um, but yeah, it was uh, you know uh, one of those things, and. Um, you know, he was helping uh, helping us move. We, we moved house from a rental accommodation to house uh, to another house, and uh, Dad said, oh, "I'll help you." So we hired a truck, a little van, and uh, moving. And uh, I've gone to take something inside. I've come back out, and uh, and I couldn't find him. And I saw this. You know, I had my Hilux was there, and on the other side of the Hilux was this little fence and a little stone fence. And this little boy was just there, and he was just staring down at the front wheel of my front right wheel of my car, which I couldn't see. And I just had this sinking feeling. So I ran around the car and there was Dad. He'd, he'd collapsed and, uh, you know, I, I kind of guessed that he'd probably had, had some sort of medical episode. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we just tried to, you know, yelling out to Mum and my wife and stuff. And, um, you know, fortunately, pretty quickly, you know, we had a couple of people that, you know, worked in the medical profession that lived just up the road and, uh, heard the commotion and uh, they kind of took over and um, yeah and went from there but yeah unfortunately uh, he didn't survive that but so that was a real wake up call for me so and, you rethink uh, everything after that almost. I think you do yeah yeah, yeah I remember I, I remember having some diary entries about you know how I'm going to um, you know look after myself better and things like that I remember that and, uh, and so, so things just morphed from there really yeah. it's probably the next probably a year after that year or yeah. so after that that I I ended up watching some docos and, and end up going vegan, yeah. Okay, as we move into our uh, rapid fire, um, yep. describe your your average morning then. What's your morning routine? How do you get ready for the day? Uh, get up. Um, what time? It depends on when the kids wake me up or when Mrs G says I have to help with the <laughs> kids getting ready for school. So anywhere between half six and seven, um, I'll get up and... Um, I help with the kids' breakfast or just hang out with them, um, have some breakfast. Um, and it really depends what I'm doing. Yep. If, it's a, if it's a day, working day, then I'm out the door. Um, Non-working day, I, I can be slow out of the blocks in terms of um, I, liked, I like my time to just – I like to take my time with things. So if I've got an appointment, uh, I'll probably leave it quite late before I head out the door. Um, I don't like to be late. And I'll, I'll never late, but I um, I do I don't like to rush in the mornings mm. if that makes sense. Yep. I, I'm not a rusher in the mornings. I I need time to just 
wake up and get the start the engine, basically. <laughs> the best prank you ever pulled on a teammate? Best prank I ever pulled on a teammate? I actually... Or that you've well, been that on the receiving end. Yeah, or one that comes to mind. Oh, geez, I... Uh... Does it need a bit of notice on this? I can't think. Um, well, well, as you're thinking, this might help you articulate. Is there really two factions in the Australian cricket team, in the, in the, the bowlers versus the batsmen? Is it that divided? Uh, I, I think the, the bowlers tend to spend a bit of time together because, you know, when when you're batting, uh, the batters are they're getting ready and focused on the bat, or the bowlers are just kicking back and chilling out. Um it's more the you know when I first started the Julios and nerds. No, this is yeah. the this is what I've heard about. Yeah. So the Julios are the guys that uh, maybe a bit of peroxide in the hair or the Batsman. hair product. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Um, But but look, dress really well. Like really enjoy things like window shopping, um, <laughs> going for a cappuccino uh, or a latte. You know, sitting people watching. Um, nerds uh, don't really care too much about. What they're wearing, their appearance, um, they'll um, prefer to go and have a pint <laughs> at the pub. Um, yeah, so basically. And who would have been leader of either packs? Um, well, Glenn McGrath, I mean, he had the Lloyd Christmas haircut, so he had to be, in, and he used to always wear his uh, pants. You know, short. Ankle it was as if uh, ankle. Yeah, he was trying to get away from the floods, flood waters. <laughs> so uh, he was king of the nerds, and I was up there in the nerds, uh, just with my dress sense. And um, yeah, well, you can't have a nose like this and be a Julio anyway. So, <laughs> um, and I had a mullet for a time. Uh, but the Julios, the you know, the Shane Warne, he was king of the Julios. Mm. Um, Michael Clark. Um, Shane Watson. I mean, mm. when you take hair straighteners on tour, you're a Julio. Um, <laughs> you know, Damien Martin was a Julio. Mark Waugh. I mean, mm. you know, he had to he had to make sure that buffont was uh, was nicely Can you manicured. I've heard a, a a bit of an urban legend that Mark Waugh never really showered with the guys. Is that is there any truth in that rumor? No, I think he showered, but I, I just think he probably just. You know, in male dressing rooms, blokes are just letting it all hang out and everything. I think Mark was just a bit more private, that's all. But, you know, he, he definitely showered, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but then you had the um, the hybrid, the... Um, Ooh, Brendan the double Ju- agent. Bre- Brendan Julian was a classic, um, mm. um, absolute nerd of a man, um, but in a Julio's body because mm. he's obviously the good-looking <laughs> rooster, big, tall bloke that, you know... Uh, women swoon over, um, you know. So he had the look of a Julio, but a raging nerd in, inside with uh, with his words and actions. Yeah, <laughs> I know you're short for time. One last one from me. Yeah, yeah, Out of all the Test match wickets, what's the one that stands out in your mind? Your favourite? Oh, oh, there's a few. Any time you get out, like big players, big moments. Um, I think, but. But I think one stands out. I remember play MCG uh, Boxing Day Test 2001. Um, and I was in a, in the middle of a really good spell. Uh, I think at one point I had six for six against the West Indies, and sort of I put a few across the, to get away from Lara and Brian Lara, and then one just sort of held its line. It just clipped the off stump, mm. top of off, and. Uh, you know, I tell everyone it was a setup. You know, going to cross, 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 and bring one back. But you know, it was just the way it hit the seam and just held its line. But um, it was more the line and length mm. I was happy with. I just kept chipping away at there, and you know, those things. You know, if you hold the seam upright and and it goes your way. But 
Um, but that was a nice wicket, and the fact that it was Brian, who I probably rated higher than any other bowler, uh, any other batsman I bowled to, uh, him up there with Tendulkar, Dravids, Laxmans, Vaughns, these sort of boys, mm. they're the calluses, they're the sort of wickets you want. You, you know, you want to, as you know, that you're putting a big dent in the opposition by mm. knocking these guys over. So to get Lara for a duck in a West Indies side that was probably struggling a little bit if he didn't contribute, uh, it's very satisfying. I have to ask one more. Um, okay. So that most, the, the modern day, so the current batsman that takes a breath away in world cricket at the moment and the same for a, the, the bowler that, that's playing. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, one day cricket, certainly Virat Kohli, I think he's, he's probably the best one day player I've ever seen. And I think we'll go down as the best one day batsman of all time. Um, and I don't think it's too big a call to say that now. I mean, his record is incredible. Um I think from a test point of view, I think I think Steve Smith is a wonderful player. I love how he can adjust his game to conditions. Mm. I think that's that's what you want. You want adaptable players, not adapted players, uh, who who are one dimensional. Um, and I, I think um, I, I really like watching Kane Williamson bat from New Zealand. I, I think he's mm. a fine player. Um, and and obviously Joe Root. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with Joe Root. You know, he was uh, he played at, plays at Yorkshire, where I coached for a number of years. So I got to see Joe uh, up close and and how hard he worked. And so it's no coincidence that he's he's performed so well for England over the years. Uh, as the lad works his butt off, and, uh, and it's nice to see uh, mm. you know lads getting rewarded for the efforts. Bowlers. Bowlers. I love Mitchell Stark. Just steaming in, bowling quick. Um, you know, uh, you know those nose and toes. You know, I've always been a fan of Dale Stain. Uh, I know he's had some injury problems in the last, you know, couple of years, but in his pomp, you know, uh, wow, what a what a bowler! Um, fast, pitch the ball up, swing it away from the right handers. Great attitude to fast bowling. Mm. Um, you know, really enjoy watching him play. And uh, we've got a young lad on the strikers who I think could be a, a, a fine fast bowler for many years to come in Billy Stanlake. You know, mm-hmm. um, six foot nine, bowls 150 clicks. That's pretty impressive. And uh, look forward to seeing how he develops over the years as well. Well, on that note, Dizzy Gillespie, mate, thanks for giving up your time. We didn't even touch on all your success with the strikers, really. And um, I could sit here with a pint and just do this for another five hours. So really appreciate <laughs> and you. And a lentil burger. Time. And, and, and a lentil, lentil burger. burger. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, mate. No, pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to our chat with Jason Gillespie. You can connect with Jason via Pickstar, the best place to book sports stars at pickstar.com.au. If you're interested in a different take on the world of sport, in the words of the most influential people from within the industry, subscribe to Off Field. Search your podcast player or visit off-field.co. We have plenty of interesting interviews in the bank and many more to come on Rooster Radio. So subscribe, and if you like what we're doing, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. And connect with us at roosterradio.biz. We'd love to hear from you.